The reading this morning is Daniel chapter 10. Daniel chapter 10. If you're interested in following along and don't have a Bible with you this morning, there are some right outside the door here on a resource table. You're welcome to grab one there. And if you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to take it home with you as well. Daniel chapter 10. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a message was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belteshazzar. And the message was true and one of great conflict. But he understood the message and had an understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, had been mourning for three entire weeks. I did not eat any tasty food, nor did meat or wine enter my mouth, nor did I use any ointment at all until the entire three weeks were completed. On the 24th day of the first month, while I was by the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted my eyes and looked. And behold, there was a certain man dressed in linen whose waist was girded with a belt of pure gold of Euphaz. His body was also like beryl. His face had the appearance of lightning. His eyes were like flaming torches. His arms and feet like the gleam of polished bronze. And the sound of his words were like the sound of a tumult. Now I, Daniel, alone saw the vision. While the men who were with me did not see the vision, nevertheless a great dread fell on them and they ran away to hide themselves. So I was left alone and saw this great vision. Yet no strength was left in me. For my natural color turned to a deathly pallor, and I retained no strength. But I heard the sound of his words, and as soon as I heard the sound of his words, I fell into a deep sleep on my face, with my face to the ground. Then, behold, a hand touched me, and set me trembling on my hands and knees. He said to me, O Daniel, man of high esteem, understand the words that I am about to tell you, and stand upright, for I have now been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, Do not be afraid, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart on understanding this and on humbling yourself before your God, your words were heard. And I have come in response to your words. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me for 21 days. Then behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left there with the kings of Persia. Now I have come to give you an understanding of what will happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision pertains to the days yet future. When he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face toward the ground and became speechless. And behold, one who resembled a human being was touching my lips. Then I opened my mouth and spoke and said to him who was standing before me, O my Lord, as a result of the vision, anguish has come upon me and I have retained no strength. For how can a servant of my Lord talk with such as my Lord? As for me, there remains just now no strength in me, nor has any breath been left in me. Then this one with human appearance touched me again and strengthened me. He said, O man of high esteem, do not be afraid. Peace be with you. Take courage and be courageous. Now, as soon as he spoke to me, I received strength and said, 
May my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Then he said, Do you understand why I came to you? But I shall now return to fight against the prince of Persia. So I'm going forth, and behold, the prince of Greece is about to come. However, I will tell you what is inscribed in the writing of truth. Yet there is no one who stands firmly with me against these forces except Michael, your prince. The last section of verse 2 of the Reformation hymn, the top of the page in the bulletin that we were just singing from. Nations rage and devils roar. Still Christ reigns forevermore. Through the church he redeemed and made his own. He has freed us. He will keep us till we're safely home. Nations rage and devils roar. These are not just hyper-spiritualized words here from the hymn writer that we've sung. Spiritual warfare is real. It's not like human warfare. Both are real. But in human warfare, we are not sure which side will win. In spiritual warfare, Christ has already won. He is victorious. What is left with regard to spiritual warfare is for us to do the finishing off or the mopping up operation while Satan and his demons make their last stand. But it's not a feeble or fledgling last stand. It's a valiant last stand. But it's a failing last stand. Because Christ is victorious. The conflict that we see in the world around us, that we experience in our lives, is at its very root evil and satanic. Satan and his his demons stand opposed to God and against God's people. They will do, and they do, everything in their power to distract the human race, the crowning of God's creation, from its one true purpose in life. That is, to bow the knee to Jesus and to worship God as creator, savior, and sovereign ruler. As we come to Daniel chapter 10, it is the beginning of the end. These final three chapters, 10, 11, and 12 all go together as a larger unit. Chapter 10 introduces the final vision that Daniel will have that is recorded for us in chapters 11 and 12. So 10, 11, and 12 are a single unit. 10 is preparatory for the vision that is revealed to Daniel and recorded for us in chapters 11 and 12. The preparatory nature of chapter 10 is why I've titled the sermon, Revelation Preparation. So Daniel is being prepared by God to receive this next vision, this next revealing from heaven. We want to remember at least two specific things as we consider chapter 10 together this morning. First, There were conflicts and battles in the world during Daniel's lifetime. 
Empires had risen, empires had fallen during his 80 years on earth. With that in mind, there is a bigger unseen spiritual battle that was going on as these empires are rising and falling. A battle for the souls of men and women and children, a battle that was going on in the spiritual realm. So remembering these two things, there are earthly battles being fought all around in Daniel's day. And there are unseen, at least not seen as clearly, there are spiritual battles happening as well. I have divided our time this morning into six different topics. Taken The first five are all from the text here. And the sixth one I just made up. Not, not really, but you'll understand when we get there. So. Point number one from verses one through nine, Christ. Christ. Point number two from verses 10 and 11 and 12, comfort. Point number three from verses 13 and 14, conflict. Point number four from verses 15, 16, and 17, clean. Point number five, 18 through 21, courage. So Christ, comfort, conflict, clean, and courage. Culminating in communion. That's the sixth one that I didn't really make up. But that's where we're headed, is to the Lord's table this morning together. Verse one. The message was revealed to Daniel. The message was true and one of great conflict. But, and here's where this is completely different than the previous chapters that we've looked at, but he understood the message and had an understanding of the vision. This is not like some of the previous dreams and visions that had confused Daniel or scared him or made him sick even. According to Daniel, as he records it for us, he understands it. And I trust that will help us to derive some benefit from it as well. Verse 1 dates when the vision happened for us in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia. In the third year. If we look back at Ezra chapter 1, in the first year of Cyrus... In order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, we looked at in, if you remember from Daniel chapter 9, Daniel was reading Jeremiah about the exile and how long they would be in captivity. In the first year of Cyrus's reign, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, I'm reading from Ezra chapter 1, so that Cyrus sent a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it in writing and said this, the Lord, the God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he's appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is Judah. Whoever there is among all of you, his people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. Every survivor, Cyrus said, at whatever place he may live, let the men of that place support him with silver and gold, with goods and cattle, together with a freewill offering for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. 
As I mentioned, we saw last week in Daniel 9, as Daniel was reading the prophet Jeremiah, specifically in chapter 25, he was reminded that this exile of 70 years was coming to an end. God had used Nebuchadnezzar to punish his people and to lead them into this exile 70 years earlier. Who would God now use to let his people return to their land and to rebuild the temple? Ezra tells us, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus. And so he tells God's people, you can go back home. I'll even help you do it. It's incredible. Just like that, seemingly out of nowhere. No wars needed to be fought. No uprising had to happen. As the Lord moved Nebuchadnezzar to punish God's people, previously he moves Cyrus to bless them. In the third year, the date we are at now, is Cyrus, king of Persia. Cyrus's edict happened in the first year of his reign. So we're two years into this now. The people of God have been free to go back to Jerusalem and to begin working on the temple. But Daniel, based on what he tells us here, where he is geographically, did not return with the exiles to the promised land. He was one of the highest-ranking Jews in the world at that time. Why did he not return with his people? Why wasn't he leading the joyous occasion, the celebratory march back to the promised land? Was he too old for the task? Did he think it was a younger man's job? Is he going to just leave it to people like Ezra and Nehemiah to do it? It doesn't really say. What we can take away is that there was one way that Daniel was extremely confident that he could serve. And that was to pray. He'd been doing it for 70 years, faithfully seeking God. And he continued doing that. It's been two years since they had returned to Jerusalem. And the news that was coming back was not encouraging. The work was rough going. They were facing opposition on all sides. These details are recorded for us in Ezra and Nehemiah. It's likely that this is the circumstance that found Daniel mourning and fasting and praying for three weeks. 21 days, he tells us. Daniel may not have been able to pick up a hammer and swing it the way that he used to could. He may not have been able to help erect the walls in the temple the way that he would have been able to as a young child or a younger man. But he could pray. And he could fast, and he could seek the face of God. He'd been doing it for a lifetime. And just because there was discouraging news coming from the promised land, he wasn't going to give up his hold on the face of God. He was going to keep seeking God. So on the 24th day of the first month, he was by the bank of the great river, the Tigris, and he lifted his eyes and looked, verse 5. And behold, there was a certain man, no ordinary man. It's important that we not read into it being Gabriel. Daniel had met Gabriel a couple times already and would have recognized him. Look at what Daniel says about this man. Dressed in linen, waist girded with a belt of pure gold of Euphaz. 
Body like barrel, face had the appearance of lightning, eyes like flaming torches, arms and feet like the gleam of polished bronze and the sound of his words like the sound of a tumult. Listen to Ezekiel's vision in chapter 1. And there came a voice from above the expanse that was over their heads. Whenever they stood still, they dropped their wings. Now above the expanse that was over their heads, there was something resembling a throne, like a lapis lazuli in appearance. And on that which resembled a throne, high up, was a figure with the appearance of a man. Then I noticed from the appearance of his loins and upward something like glowing metal that looked like fire all around within it. And from the appearance of his loins and downward, I saw something like fire. And there was a radiance around him. And the appearance of the rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the appearance of the surrounding radiance. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. Or John's vision in Revelation 1, I saw one like a son of man clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it had been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. And not only that, look at Daniel's response to seeing this man. A great dread fell on those who didn't even see it. Daniel's not alone when he sees this vision, but he alone sees it. But the reality of the vision appearing to Daniel affects the others that he's with. A great dread fell on them, verse 7 tells us, and they ran away to hide themselves. What about Daniel, who did see it? No strength was left in me, he says. My natural color turned to a deathly pallor, and I retained no strength completely devoid of any strength. Not altogether different than Paul's Damascus Road experience. Or Ezekiel. We read Ezekiel's vision. This is what Ezekiel says immediately after the vision. When I saw it, I fell on my face and heard a voice speaking. Or what about the Apostle John? Revelation 1.17. When I saw him, this man, I fell at his feet like a dead man. Meeting Jesus is no light matter. I mean, we hear people in our day claiming to have had a visit for Jesus, with, from Jesus. And they talk about how they were hanging out like old friends, shooting the breeze. Or how they laughed or joked or discussed all the coming blessings that were promised in their lives. Or on the other hand, you hear those who say, who do not claim to belong to God, and they boast of how they plan to give Jesus a piece of their mind when they run into him one day, both of these scenarios are bogus, absurd untruths. When we meet Christ, the Christ that these scriptures tell us about, we will bow before him. If you do not know him as Savior, you will experience unimaginable terror. And there will be nowhere to run like Daniel's companions. Nowhere to hide. Nowhere to escape. You will be laid bare before him who sees all and does no wrong. And if you do know him as Savior, you'll still bow, falling at his feet in worship. Of this glorious one who loves us with an everlasting love and died to save us. 
Daniel is prepared for the coming vision by Christ himself. The glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And Christ brings, beginning in verse 10, comfort. A hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. So Daniel goes from face to the ground to trembling on his hands and knees. Then he's told to stand up even further, which he does. He's given the strength by Christ to stand, and yet he's still trembling in fear and reverence before a holy Christ. When we meet this Christ, we will hear one of two phrases when our time comes to meet him. Well done, good and faithful servant, greatly beloved. That's what Daniel hears here. Greatly esteemed. We looked at that last week. My precious one, son of my love. Or the other option, away from me, Christ will say to some. I never knew you. To Daniel, do not be afraid. From the first day, verse 12, from the first day that you set your heart on understanding this, on humbling yourself before God, your words were heard. I've come in response. What a wonderful encouragement that as soon as our voice, as soon as the prayer comes out of us, whether voiced or unvoiced, it is heard in the heavens. What great confidence that God hears and that he promises to answer according to what is best for us. I mentioned that Daniel was still trembling as he stood up. Not taking for granted. Just because he recognized that the strength that he had to get to his hands and knees initially and then to get to his feet didn't come from himself, from within. But it came from the Christ who was standing before him, whom he was face to face with. The one whom he had sought for some 70 plus years at this point. Verse 13, 14, conflict. Not just small conflict, but constant kingdom level conflict. There is a cosmic confrontation happening that is explained here. It's It's a cosmic conflict with eternal consequences. A conflict that's constant, constant not just in Daniel's day, not just as Jesus was hanging on the cross, but even in our day, this constant cosmic conflict continues. Listen to the apostle writing to the church at Ephesus. Be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God. Why? Why, Paul? So that you'll be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Explain that to us, Paul. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, he writes, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. That's why. This is why we don't put our trust in princes or in men. They are evil. 
There are, pardon, evil, unseen forces at work in this world intent on destroying the people of God. Now, what Daniel is emphasizing, what the Apostle Paul is referring to, and what I am simply restating is not some kind of paranoia. It's exactly what the Bible teaches. Our response to this should not be panic. Why not? Because greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. That's why. At the same time, we shouldn't run around looking under every stone and behind every bush trying to find those demons. We are nowhere in in Scripture commanded to do this. Our response, rather, should be, be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And as we read the New Testament, we see little glimpses here and there where the spiritual curtain is pulled back and we discover that this enemy of our souls is not going to go down lightly. But he will go down. In light of eternity, he has gone down. Because Christ is victorious. Even in defeat, the forces of evil are doing everything they can to harass and oppose the people of God and to keep the lost in spiritual blindness and unbelief. Daniel refers to his vision, as we mentioned already, as one of great conflict. And it's not conflict just happening in one area. There's one primary area, but it's affecting all of these other areas or arenas of life. There's conflict going on within Daniel's heart. He's fasting and and praying for three weeks. He's doing battle with God for his soul, as it were, and for the souls of the people and for the temple so that God could be worshipped in a way that he's commanded. There's conflict going on in the warring nations. While he lived, there's conflict among those who are attempting to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. There's the future conflict that has already been promised to Daniel. There's the final conflict of the final Antichrist at the end of the age. And finally, the one that is stirring up all of these other, so we might call minor or secondary conflicts, is the conflict in the heavenly places, in the spiritual realm. It is crucial that we understand that this sixth Conflict in the list that I've given is the one that is behind and driving the other five. That's what the apostle said. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but it sure feels like it. But it's against the rulers and the powers and the world forces of this darkness against the spiritual forces of wickedness. We must be aware of what's going on. And we must stick close to Jesus, who is the victor in this war. We must not be surprised when we see evil and atrocity all around us. We don't think lightly of it, but we don't let, us, let it knock us off our feet either. Every conflict in this life, from the personal to the geopolitical, has at its root evil. Again, leaning on Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus, when he describes Our situation in chapter 2 of sin and that we, apart from Christ, are acting according to the prince of the power of the air. The Apostle Paul describes Satan as a prince who has power. 
And it's an authentic power. 1 John 5, 19, we know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. There's real power that Satan has. But it's not his own power that he conjured up in himself. It's a power that was given to him by God. Luke 4, 6, the devil said to Jesus, I'll give you all this domain and its glory for it has been handed over to me and I'll give it to whomever I wish. The devil has been given freedom by God. And he's on a leash. And we don't know how long the leash is, but we know who holds the leash. Satan even has power over some illnesses. This woman, a daughter of Abraham, Luke 13, as she is, whom Satan has bound for 18 long years. Or even the Apostle Paul himself. There was given me a messenger of Satan to torment me. And even in some small way, Satan has power over death. Hebrews 2.14, he himself likewise also partook of the same that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. So we shouldn't fret or freak out when we hear that Satan has some power over death. Because in full context, it makes clear that Christ rendered him powerless who had the power of, the de- who had, who had the power of death, that is, the devil. Satan has power over some people. I mentioned Ephesians 2.2, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Those who have not trusted Christ as Lord and Savior are under the rule and power of Satan. John chapter 8, Jesus says it to the religious people, the Pharisees. You are of your father the devil. The demons are under the rule of Satan. Matthew 12, one of his titles is ruler of demons. Matthew 9, Satan has a kingdom. Matthew 12, a throne according to Revelation 2. He's called a prince because he is a ruler and he possesses power to manifest evil in the world through influencing people and commanding demons. But notice he's called a prince, not a king, because there's only one king, Christ Jesus He is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Although Satan has power and authority in the midst of our world in which we exist, his power is limited. Always. Always under the sovereign control of God. Never does he act outside of the realm in which God has control. Because there is no realm in which God does not have complete and absolute authority and sovereign control. His power is not only limited, but it's temporary. Romans 16.20, the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The wars that we see happening in our world, the battles that we fight, the evil acts that we witness are, on, are only the shockwaves, if you will, that are reverberating out over us, but do not compare. They do not compare to the heat of the battle in the spiritual realm. You have probably heard people say and may be guilty of saying it yourself that hell is living on earth. People who say that have no idea what they're saying. Hell is far more terrifying than anything we have ever seen, experienced, or imagined. It is an eternity of unspeakable, unimaginable torment. 
One of the things that we have witnessed in the book of Daniel thus far is the constant struggle of God's people here on earth. And it is a picture for us, a parallel of sorts, though not an exact one, of the real spiritual battle that is going on in the world yet behind the scenes. We are living in a world that is burning down, as it were, before our face. It is nonsensical that we would seek to redeem it. God has already told us he's going to completely destroy it. Several years ago when I lived in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, there were the, the entire side of a mountain would be covered with small homes. And the government would decide that they wanted to use that land for something else. And so there, there was a date given. Every, everything that you want out of your house needs to be out by this date. And then they would come in and just bulldoze the entire village down to build something else that belonged to them and not to the people who previously owned the land. Us attempting to redeem the temporary things of this world would be like those people who lived in those villages cleaning their houses the day before the bulldozer showed up, dusting the baseboards, washing the windows just before the bulldozers arrive. A complete waste of time. Our world is not evolving. We may even say it's devolving. The clock is running down. One day, all things will be made new. Not because of any effort on our part, but because Christ will come. But we live in the moments before that time. This is where God has called us to live and to live for him here, now, with him and for him. And he's promised that no matter how difficult it gets out there or in here or in here, he will never leave us or forsake us. Daniel recognizes that reality, which is what drives him to his knees in prayer and in fasting. Which should cause us to ask the question, when have we been concerned enough about what's going on around us that it drove us to our knees in fasting and prayer? I don't mean when's the last time you moaned about being sidelined by our godless society, but when's the last time that we've cried out to God asking him to act on behalf of his people? Christ came to Daniel, don't be afraid. From the first day you set your heart on understanding and humbling yourself before God, your words were heard. I'm here in response to your prayer. Here's the guarantee. God has heard your prayers. He's answered them. The passage continues, verse 15. I titled this section, Clean. One who resembled a human being, Christ, was touching my lips. I opened my mouth. He was speechless before. Verse 15. He's back with his face towards the ground, completely speechless. But this glorious one touches his lips. Daniel's able to open his mouth and say, how, how, how could someone like me be speaking with someone like you? And he's still the weight of the anguish. He's still struggling to regain his strength. 
The picture here is similar to that of Isaiah 6, when one of the seraphim flew to Isaiah with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs, and touched his mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. And as a result of Daniel being comforted by Christ and cleaned by Christ, there's courage instilled, continuing on in verse 18 to the end of the chapter. This one with a human appearance touched me again. Again, this is the third time. Look back at verse 10. A hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. Verse 16 that we just looked at. One who resembled a human being was touching my lips and I opened my mouth. Now verse 18. This one with human appearance touched me again and strengthened me. O man of high esteem, O O lovely and precious one, peace be with you. Take courage and be courageous. Christ comes to Daniel, enabling him to stand. Christ comes to Daniel, enabling him to speak. Christ comes to Daniel, enabling him to be at peace. In the midst of all the turmoil and devastating news and discouraging reports coming back, Christ is near him. This is the kind and compassionate Savior, Jesus. Yes, fearful to behold in his glory on the one hand, yet gentle and compassionate towards his children on the other. When he comes again, when he comes again in glory and power, we will fall on our faces, and the saved, and only the saved, will be lifted up from the dirt to go with him to glory. Daniel chapter 10 should be a word of encouragement for those who recognize the conflict that exists in the world in which we live. He has not. This is Christ to Daniel. This is Christ to us here this morning. He has not forgotten you. He has not forgotten his people. You are his beloved child. You are of high esteem. You are precious. You are loved. He has has everything in his hand. If we listen closely to Daniel chapter 10... Paying attention carefully. And some of us know experientially that it's often when we are in the darkest place that he's the closest to us. He doesn't always feel close. Sometimes he feels far off. Sometimes it doesn't feel like he's there. That's the nature of the spiritual warfare in which we are engaged. And in those times, the answer for us is to pray more and to pray harder, to seek the face of God like we see Daniel doing here. Not to earn anything before him, but to recognize the reality of how hard life is sometimes and to confess just how much we need the comfort of our Savior. Christ came to comfort, to clean, and to grant courage to Daniel. I said in the beginning, as we approached Daniel 10, we wanted to remember two things. I want to say in closing that we should remember those two things again. But rather than remembering the conflicts and battles that were in the world during Daniel's times, We should recognize and come to grips with that there are conflicts and battles in the world during our time that empires rise and empires fall. Even during our lifetime. There are people here this morning who think we are talking about distant past to speak of Saddam Hussein or Gorbachev. 
For some of us, that was last night's evening news. And I know some of you are older and can remember further things back. JFK, that, that feels like distant history to me. We live in a world where empires rise and fall, where conflicts and battles are happening all the time. What we must remember is that in the midst of this world, there's a bigger unseen spiritual battle going on for the souls of men and women and children in the spiritual realm. And Satan and his minions will do everything in their power to distract us from that one true purpose in life, to bow our knee to Jesus and to worship God as creator, savior, and sovereign ruler. There are powerful spiritual enemies against the work of the gospel that we cannot see and we cannot understand, but it is important that we realize that unbelievers are not our enemies. The governments of the world are not our enemies. There are spiritual powers at work behind the scenes that are so powerful we can't begin to comprehend it. But evil men and evil women that oppose the gospel are are merely puppets of the demons that do exist. And God has not revealed in his word all the whys and hows and winds concerning Satan's rule. I mentioned earlier we know he's on a leash. We don't know how long it is. But God has made it clear that there's only one way to escape the power of Satan's dominion. And that is through his son, Jesus Christ. That they may turn from darkness to light, from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins, Acts 26, 18. Or Colossians 1, Christ rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness for sins. Jesus himself, speaking of his coming work on the cross, declared victory over Satan. John 12, now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Nations rage and devils roar, we sang. Still Christ reigns forevermore. May that be the refrain of our lives. Recognizing that the spiritual realm is real. Conflict is constant. But Christ is king. So we don't fret over the reality of the constant conflict. But we fall at the feet of Jesus. And we worship him. And that's what we're here to do this morning, to worship Him. Gathering together, fellowshipping with one another, singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs, seeking His face in prayer, reading His Word, exhorting from it, and also coming to the table, observing the Lord's Supper, looking up, at God, who has invited us to the table. As we prepare to come, we look up at Him and consider His greatness and His glory. It is this wonderful one. Like Daniel said, how could I be talking to someone like you? That's the way we feel as we come to the table. So unworthy, yet Christ has died that we might come. 
We look up to God, the unchanging one who is merciful and gracious and slow to anger, who is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He's the God who has loved us with an everlasting love. We look up at him. But we also look in within our own souls. And we began by looking up at God because then we're able to better see ourselves. The apostle gives instruction to the church at Corinth regarding coming to the supper, giving warnings for those who would come and take and eat, and we should hear them, applying to us, whoever eats of the bread and drinks of the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself, Paul goes on to say, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So we look within considering if there are sins that need to be confessed before the Lord. We don't live a secret life. The Lord sees it all. To be guilty concerning the body and blood is to come in a way that dishonors Christ. When we come to the table, it's a time to consider our hearts before the Lord, a time to clear accounts with Him and confess sin to Him, a time to make sure that we are genuinely clinging to Christ alone, for our righteousness. So we look up to God, we look within our own hearts, but we also look back. The Lord's Supper points our minds and our hearts back. Jesus uses the elements when he instituted the last Passover and the Lord's Supper. He uses the elements of the bread and the cup to instruct us about the cross The bread in the cup showing that his body would be broken for us and that his blood would be shed for us. He he calls the cup the blood of the covenant. The promised new covenant is here. God forgives sinners through this new covenant. This new covenant has a better priest and a better sacrifice. The blood of the lamb is sufficient to save sinners like you and me. The bread in the cup point us back to the cross. So we look up to God, we look within our souls, we look back to the cross, but we also look around. The Lord's Supper should make us look around, recognizing that we're part of God's family. We're a church that's composed of different people with different experiences and various issues. But we have these two things in common as God's people. We are sinners and we are united together by faith in Christ. The Lord's Supper is the regular reminder that we have been made right with God through Christ and that we are united by Christ in fellowship one with another. If one of these things is not true, if you don't recognize that you're a sinner and you have not been united to Christ by faith, then you should not take communion. But if they are true of you, if you are in Christ, You should come and enjoy this meal as we look around together, acknowledging the bond of unity that is ours in Jesus. So we look up and within and back and around, and finally we look forward, proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes again. Jesus says he will not drink this cup again until he does so in the coming kingdom with his people. Christ is anticipating another meal, and so should we. When we take the Lord's Supper, we're looking ahead to that other meal. 
with Jesus and with his people to the great marriage supper of the Lamb when the entire church is gathered together to boast in the great saving work of Jesus Christ. So as we come to the table this morning, let's look up to God who has prepared the feast of Christ for us and invited us to it. Look within, examining ourselves in order that we come in a way that's pleasing to the Lord. We look back at what Christ has done on the cross for us. We look around at fellow Christians and church members and we look forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And as we come, may God help us to be reminded again that forgiveness and fellowship are at the heart of our lives together in God's children. The body of Christ was broken, the blood of Christ was shed that we might have the forgiveness of sins and fellowship with God and with one another. Parents, it's our desire that you give specific guidance to your children who may not yet be members of the church. We trust that you will guide them wisely. You know their profession and you know their lives. If you're here this morning and you're not in Christ, you're not a Christian and not walking with him, The the table is not for you this morning. There's no grace dispense. There's no benefit to you coming. But there is immeasurable, incalculable benefit of you running to Christ and flinging yourself onto his mercy. He stands ready to forgive and ready to save. If you're in Christ this morning, come to the table and worship. Worship God, worship Christ, and enjoy fellowship one with another. I'm going to pray in just a moment, and after I do, the elements will be here on the table. We'll approach the tables from the middle two aisles and return to our seats around the outside aisles. I mentioned after I pray, the elements will be displayed, music will be playing, and we will stand and sing after everyone's had a chance to observe the supper. Let's pray. Our gracious God in heaven, we thank you for your word that you have preserved it for us, provided it to us, and prepared our hearts to receive it. God, we pray that you will cause it to sink below our minds, into our hearts, affecting every fiber of who we are in order that we might be a people who walk close with you, who seek to obey you in every respect. It is our desire to honor you with the entirety of our lives. God, we thank you for Christ, that he came to save sinners. We confess that he came to save us because we are sinners. God, as we come, recognizing that you've invited us, that you've accomplished everything necessary through Christ in order that we might come, God, we remember him who gave himself for us. God, keep Christ on the forefront of our minds. Cause him to be the new song on our lips and in our heart. As we take the bread and drink of the cup, we proclaim his death until he comes again. And God, we long for that coming. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.